0: Well, we are in the last days of Mark here, the last days of the Gospel of Mark. For us as a church, we are also in the last days of Jesus' life. Today we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 14. Uh, We were in Mark 14 last week. We're going to stay in Mark 14, and we're going to see what it has for us. And so we're going to just jump right into Scripture today. If you have a Bible, feel free to open to Mark 14. If you have a phone that has your Bible on it, feel free to read it on there. We'll have it on the screen, but this is a lengthy text, and we'll read it together here. Here's what it says, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the sheep and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into the Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for an hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say. And returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go! Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd of armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of the, those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have to come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you for your word. God, we just use your word today to move in our lives that you might help us to see where we fall short and that we would see in this text your glory. And so, God, be uh, with me today. Let me be your mouthpiece of truth and just move in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. I know there are many people in this world that, that look at the Bible. And they say, that's not true. There's no way that can be true. And they look at scriptures and they don't see them as divinely inspired or without error. People can speculate that the pages of the Bible are just this, or is this just fantastical document in which people over time have thrown things into it to make it look more impressive. And maybe there are some of you in this room that hold a belief that's similar to that. That maybe you don't see these scriptures as divine but maybe you just see them as a good way to live life but they're not actually true that maybe there's honor and goodness in this but it certainly isn't a document that one would radically align their life with and so before we go into depth on this text today, I just want to show you, I want to notice just a few things within this piece of Scripture that I hope will create some doubt within your head that you might seek out the Lord and his Scripture and try to understand the, the true nature of what the Bible is. Uh, one of the things that I want you to notice and point out to you, and maybe you've already noticed it, was the, the last few verses that we read in this story. The last kind of segment that we read about this young man wearing a garment, a linen garment, and someone came to grab him, and they must have missed him, and all they got was his garment, and the Word of God records that there is this young man naked, streaking in the midst of the passages of Jesus heading to the cross. Now, some have speculated that this is just kind of face value what it is. It's just a guy, a young man following Jesus who gets frightened as he's arrested, and they flee, and they try to grab him, but miss. Some think that this is the beloved disciple John. Others think that this is Mark himself trying to write himself into his own gospel. Uh, The truth is we really don't know, and I don't really think it matters that we know But one thing that we know for sure from the author of Mark is that Mark's aim in writing this gospel is to convince the world that Jesus Christ was literally God in flesh, that he came to live a perfect life, to atone for our sins on the cross, and to give us new life in his resurrection. And so that is the main thrust of what Mark is trying to do in his gospel. And so why would it be true that Mark would come down to write this thing, to write this story about Christ, and he would say to himself, hey, you know what this story needs? A streaker. That's what this story needs. It needs a naked guy in it. That's going to help deceive the world. No, that's, that's silly. That's not what Mark is doing here. The story does nothing to compel the narrative of Christ going to the cross. doesn't do anything to compel the nature of Jesus as the Messiah. It just doesn't fit. And that is precisely why it's important to us. That is precisely why it's important to us. This compels to us the person in Mark is just trying to say, Hey, this happened. He's not trying to embellish the truth or inflate the truth. The naked guy was just there, and Mark wrote about it. He's just relaying the information. There's a feeling of authenticity to this. You wouldn't put that in there if you were going to try to convey to the world a story about a man named Jesus who is the Son of God. That does nothing for your narrative. This has everything to do with Mark reporting the events just as they happened. And even then, we look at Mark in the way that he writes. Mark, a human being, does not compel a story of the disciples, this group of men, in a good light at all. He does not speak well of his own kind, especially Peter. And that's interesting because Mark is essentially writing the account of Peter's life, his observations of Jesus. Mark is known as Peter's gospel. And so Mark is not writing well of Peter in this, and we'll see that he compels him in some ways to be foolish. I mean, if you're going to deceive people, wouldn't you want to be remembered well down the line? Would you write of yourself in such foolish ways? For posterity sakes? No, Mark is just trying to write the details of the events. He's an eye. He's talking about the witness account. And if he's doing it in this section of Scripture, you can believe that he's doing it in every section of Scripture, especially in the resurrection. And if that is true, if he is just writing down the story of what happens, then it changes everything in our lives. And so today, I I want to look in this scripture, and I want us to notice a contrast. I want us to notice a contrast that Mark writes about amongst the disciples, the followers of Jesus, compared to the beauty of Christ. It is in the failure of these men that I want to spend our time with today before we get to the glory of God. Because I think that when we look into these stories, into this text we come to understand a little bit better of why we fail and then why the cross and the resurrection is so important to us. So these men in the scripture, the disciples, Peter, James, John, and the rest, these are uh, the epitome, the face of failure. They abandon Jesus in his darkest hour. They have leaned into their own fears, their own self-interest. They are self-preserving. They disappoint him at every turn. And the easy thing to do would be to look in these scriptures and say, how could they? In the light of what they have seen, in the light of what they have known, three years in the presence of God, Jesus, the full radiance, you would think that they would have a perfect obedience, perfect in service to the Lord, but they are not. And the reason they are not has nothing to do with Jesus as a leader, but everything to do with them as a human has everything to do with them being human of the flesh in a natural bent towards selfishness. You know, there are days in my life, not so many now, but there still are days in my life where I might come to God and pray something like, Lord, if you would just, if you would just show, show me a sign here. Show me something here, Lord, and then I, I'll believe it. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Lord, if you could just make this cup move, just make it move, just a little. Doesn't millimeter. Oh, it moved. You know, we have this deep belief that if God would just appear to us in flesh, that if He would just do a miraculous sign, then we would follow Him for the rest of our lives. Whatever you want, Lord. I know that I'm probably not the only one that has made a prayer like that to have this belief that if i actually saw jesus or he did something then then if it was outside of mere coincidence then i would fully give my life to him but our scriptures particularly the gospels show us otherwise because here you have men who have seen the full radiance of god in christ physically been with god but they still fail they still disappoint and they still lack obedience And so Mark, in his diligence, just to report the events, the facts, shows us the stark reality of what it looks like to live in a fallen world with fallen flesh, despite even God himself being present amongst them. And the reality is, is this scripture speaks well to us today. It will shed light even on why we fail and why we disappoint ourselves despite even our best attempts. And so we use this term flesh a lot in this church, and I think it's worth us kind of talking about what that means. Your flesh is your body, it's your physical body, but it also, in Scripture, compels this part of you that is at war with the will and the purposes of God. It's the part of you that fights for its own independence away from God. It's the part of you that thinks you know better than God, that you can do it alone. It fights for its own self-interest. And Jesus compels it to us this way. In Mark 14, he says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In these men, we see a desire to do good, to obey God, but at the same time, a desire in the flesh to do what is right by themselves. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this as well. In in the book of Galatians, in his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul writes this in chapter 5. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And Paul will go on to beg you to live in a life of the Spirit. Lean in to the life of the Spirit. And so, uh, what I want us to, to know today is that we have to understand the tension between the flesh and the Spirit every day of our lives. It's prevalent inside uh, of, of these scriptures, it's prevalent inside the last few days of Jesus' life. The battle for independence that thinks we know better, we can make our own way, that stands in direct contrast to the dependency. That we see in Jesus in the scripture. Because listen, if Jesus was a superhero, he's a savior, he's not a superhero, let's not trivialize him like that. We we would like to come to this conclusion that maybe Jesus' most awesome power is his ability to control the weather or his ability to heal people in sickness. But Jesus' greatest power is his dependency on the Lord, on God. He is just dependent on the Father, His will, and the Holy Spirit, and every aspect of His life. And that's what we see in this text. And so Mark's going to convey to us kind of Three different marks of, of this desire for independence from God in these disciples. And the, the three things that we're going to talk about is this desire in self-confidence, in prayerlessness, and in control. These are the hallmarks of flesh-filled living. And then we'll compare that to the life that we see in dependency that Jesus has on the Father, on the Spirit, that is marked by three contrasting things. It's marked by a life that's centered on the Word, a marked by prayer, and a dutiful, unglamorous, gritty devotion and obedience to God. We'll talk about those. Earlier in this text, we see Jesus speaking about how everyone will leave him. Jesus is quoting Zechariah here. That everybody will be scattered. And and what Jesus says is that all of you will leave them. And what does Peter say? He says, I won't. Even if these fools over here leave you Jesus I will never fall away from you and then Jesus says no listen even today like you're you're gonna you're gonna fall away from me and then Peter's just like fake news fake news like uh I will I'm I'm just gonna keep following you even if I have to die I will follow you and so me Peter has always come across as this like stereotypical, macho, immature high school boy that thinks they're bulletproof and invincible. He thinks that he can do anything. If you tell him that he can't, then he's just going to. If we notice in Peter's life, Jesus walks on the water in one of the Gospels, in some of the Gospels, and who's the first person off the boat? Peter. Peter just, okay, we can walk on water these days. Peter just has this bulletproof spirit, but... What do we see at the end of this text? He does. He leaves. He falls away. You know, it's easy to say when we're in the living room or easy to say in our minds that we'll do something, but it's immensely harder when life comes at you, isn't it? And what makes this self-confidence so dangerous is that it's rooted primarily in pride. And we know from a word that God hates pride. He opposes pride pride. If we look into the word of God, if we look at Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say is true of people that follow him? It is for the meek, the poor in spirit, that those who are first in the kingdom of God are the ones who deny themselves, count others more important than them who pick up their cross and carry it Daily. It is an absolute emptying of oneself de- to dependency on God. To know that I can't do this without you. And what self-confidence makes us want to do is think that I can rightly fix my life through my own effort, that I can navigate my life through my own fruition. Self-confidence leads us to bid for our own independence from God. The second thing that we notice in these men, in this passion of the flesh, as we'll call it, is that inside of this intimate prayer meeting that we see in this text, where Jesus calls the big three, uh, Peter, James, and John, on three occasions, Jesus goes off and prays and asks them to keep watch and pray for him. And each time that Jesus comes back, he finds them asleep. Like they can't even pray They can't even stay awake and pray for Jesus in literally what are the last few moments that they will have with him together. They fall asleep. One of the things that I've kind of realized in this job is like like it's hard to get people to come together and pray. Like it's hard to get people to come to, to prayer meetings. People don't really want to come. And look, I get it. Sometimes I have to force myself to be at those things. And so what is it about prayer that makes it so challenging? Why is sleep almost always a better option than prayer? I think you can picture it like this. If you think about the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, what makes that game work is that each entity has its own equal ability to win. Rock gets beat by paper, paper gets beat by scissors, scissors gets beat by rock. But if we think of like the triad of sleep, Netflix, and prayer like Netflix, seems to beat sleep. Sleep always beats prayer. What was prayer beat? Nothing. Prayer loses every time. So what is it that makes prayer so hard for us? If we can look in this text and kind of look to see what it is with these disciples, I think we can picture and see it like this. These men don't have the urgency that Jesus has to pray. They have no belief that this is going to affect them. There's no urgency in their life to pray. There's no urgency to go in front of the Father. They don't share his burden. They're sort of clueless to what's going on. And the other reason that I think we struggle with prayer is that maybe, maybe, just at the bottom of all of it, we don't actually believe that prayer works And that, you know, maybe that makes you gasp. Well, prayer works. But I would say our prayerlessness in action probably manifests out from our belief that it actually doesn't work. And so prayerlessness is always a bid for our own independence. It's always a bid that I can do in my life what I need to do. I can hide from God and do my own thing and not be dependent on Him. The third thing that we notice in this passion of the flesh is just this control. You know, what happens to you when a life crisis hits? What happens when you're hit in a moment in life where there are things that you can't handle? Uh, The first thing that we normally do is panic. And then we find a way to take control of the situation. And this is exactly what we see in this passage in Mark here. That when things begin to go awry, panic and then control. Jesus is kissed by his betrayer, Judas, who's one of the 12 disciples. He's taken up by these guards, and then one of the disciples lashes out in anger and chops off the ear of one of the servants uh, of these men. And who do you think that disciple is? Peter. John names names, John tells us it was Peter. And so here's the thing Peter should have known, Peter is not listening. Jesus has been telling them for a long time that the Son of Man is going to suffer. He literally, in this text, says this is the day. Peter does not listen to him. But isn't this us? Isn't this us? That in moments in life when we're overwhelmed, we panic and just want to take control, we say, I've got to do something about this rather than God help me. And so these are the things that are marked in the flesh, in the story, self-confidence, prayerlessness, and control. And listen, the disciples fail at every turn in them. They fail at every turn. And this story ends in one of the most heart-breaking, depressive scenes where the Word of God records that everyone fled Jesus. Everyone left him by himself. And so understand, when you seek to live a life for God based upon your own power and your own ability in your flesh, you will get to a point where God will let you fail. That God will let you fail sometimes supremely. These men realize they are powerless and they are moved by fear. And then when we look at Jesus, we see something completely different. You know, as we we talked about in this story, we we see Jesus is just kind of led by Scripture. He quotes Zechariah. Anybody quote me a verse out of Zechariah? Jesus is just enamored with the Scriptures. He's just full of the Scriptures. He's so enveloped by the Scripture that He sees everything and everyone through its lens. It's what carries him. It's what helps him deliver out of temptation. The Word says that Jesus gave himself to devotion and study of the Scripture at a very young age. He's nourished by them. It's part of his power that sustains him. His knowledge of Scripture leaves everyone astonished. All of his enemies, every opponent, every follower is amazed with the knowledge that Jesus has in Scripture. And this is the first mark of a Spirit-filled life that we see in Jesus in His passion towards the cross. We see utter dependence on the Word of God. Everything is informed with it. The second thing that we see is that a life that is lived by the Spirit, a life that honors Jesus, is one that's marked by prayer. And we've talked about this already And I'm not going to go into great detail about this, but do you notice the words of Jesus here? They're not flashy or long-winded, but what they are are honest. This is a son talking to his father. He's being transparent in his heart about his struggle, about his emotions, about where he's at. This is a great picture of what it looks like for you and I. to We don't have to have extravagant prayers. We just have to be honest with God. Where we're at, what I think is fascinating in this text, in this particular text, is that Jesus does not want to go through what's, what in, what's in front of him. He is in agony with about what is going to happen in the next day, but he's still willing to face it, even though he doesn't feel like that. He doesn't feel like doing it, but he's still willing to do it. And I say that because a lot of Christians think that your feelings are a gauge on what God's will is. That if I feel something, it must be God leading me there. But we see in this passage, Jesus is specifically going against his emotions because he knows what God wants for him. Listen, your feelings will most often take you away from things that you don't want to do. They will take you away from resistance and struggles and uncomfortable things. But here in this scripture, we see Jesus denying his own self and following the will and the command of God. The word itself has commanded us to deny ourselves, to move into struggle, to move into things that are uncomfortable for us because he said to not always because we feel like it. And so the dependent life, the spirit life, is marked by prayer. But it's also marked by this just this gritty obedience to the Father's will. Jesus is begging that the Father would take this cup from him, that he would maybe spare him in this hour. But what we notice in Jesus is that he's just dutifully obedient to the words and the will of the Father. And it's not spectacular, it's not glamorous. There's nothing inside of these scriptures that we go exceptional. It's just him following the Father in dependence. Not so he gets attention, but rather that he would do the will of the Lord. These are the three things that we see marking life in the Spirit in this text. Centered on the Word, marked by prayer, and gritty obedience. And look, I say these things to you today, not for you to look at this compare and contrast in this area and say, this is a practical guide for you to learn how to live a life in a spirit This is how you should do it. Do as Jesus did. We should do as Jesus has done, but that's not what this text gives to us. What this text shows to us is that in the midst of the presence of God, the fullness of God, these men still fell short of the glory of God. They still fell short in their pursuit of God. They're not willful in trying to do it. They're not trying to, to displease God. It's just in them. They're just bent towards selfishness, towards preservation. They fail. And the same thing is true for you and I. Failure and sin is not just limited to one person or me or just a group of people, but failure and sin is a disease that the whole world faces it's innate in every one of us it's not limited to you and you have to do something with it and so we elevate this scripture not to say do as jesus did yes but rather that we might just say look at him just look at him The perfection of Christ in the midst of our failures. That we would come to understand that Jesus is the only one who has never failed. He is the only one who could live a perfect life in the sight of God. It had to be this way. It had to be this way. He had to be isolated. He had to be set apart. He had to be beaten. He had to be tortured. He had to be set apart so the wrath of God would be poured out onto him and him alone. That he and he alone would bear our sins. That he would take the place for you and me. That he would succeed where you and I may fail. Your failure is what separates you from God. And if you don't deal with it, it will keep you separated from God. God had to have a way for you. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that when we look at this scripture and we see the failings of these men, we will notice the failings of ourselves in them. And the great hope of this story is that in the next day, on the way to where he's going, on the cross. The hope that we have is because of that cross, all of our failure and all of our sin are wiped away. And so let us look to him, not for practical guide, but just look at him. I mean, look at him in Gethsemane. Look at the agony that our Savior is going through. Look at the weight of judgment that He's preparing Himself to take. Look at what He's going through, that He's willing to take your sins and your judgment. Look at the cost that it cost Him, that you would remember Him in your failure, that He is the only way that you get to deal with it, that in Him you have the ability to get up by His grace, and walk again. That you would remember on the cross that he absorbed every drop of God's wrath and left none for you. The Christian life is not one that bids for independence, but one that grows deeper, year after year in dependency on God because the more I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how deeply I failed him. And it is in that brokenness, in that meekness, in that surrender that I learned just how far he was willing to come to bring me back. And that is the glory of the cross and the resurrection that we get to celebrate next week. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you today and we thank you for the way that your word just presses on our heart. We thank you for the way that you give us life through this living book. And so Lord, I just pray in earnest that you would help us to see our failures and in our failures, Lord, that you would help us to come to the end of ourselves, that it isn't about our ability to do good, to be perfect, but rather our surrender to you, because you have done for us what we can never do. And so, Lord, help us to live by the Spirit, that we would kill the fleshly desires in us. Father, move our hearts today where you need to. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if you're in here today and maybe the Lord is speaking to you and you just need prayer over your life, just know our prayer team is available to you today. If you're in here today and you just need to pray for somebody else, just know we would love that opportunity You can come up here or even meet us in our prayer room after service today. But let's stand and worship our King one last time.